Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the media still doesn't understand Trump's support, the never-ending lockdown continues, and a bizarre coalition for press freedom. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is great to have you aboard the show. Going to talk a little bit more about U.S. politics than we normally would on this show, given this is the last edition of the program prior to the 2020 United States election. I will say, though, that people who follow me on Twitter and have heard me talk about this in the past on the program will no doubt be aware that I tend to point out at Canadian media outlets for being a fair bit more obsessed with U.S. election coverage and Trump than they should be. And in particular, CBC. And the reason for that is very clear. CBC is given $1.3 billion a year with which they are supposed to be providing essential Canadian journalism, the kind that commercial media are not doing. And if you looked at CBC's front page of its website on the morning before the election, Monday morning, you see it's Trump, 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 Biden, 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 all U.S. stories. The one connection to Canada is actually just a, a Canadian angle on an American story. You look at uh, a couple of weeks ago, the same sort of thing happened. So the day before the election, people might be a bit more forgiving of it. But this has been going on for weeks, where the only story CBC wants to cover are American stories. I remember earlier on in the coronavirus pandemic, Andrew Scheer, who was at the time the conservative leader, would be speaking. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, I want to figure out what's happening. What's Andrew Scheer saying? I turn on CBC, and instead they're carrying, you know, at the time the White House press secretary, I think it was Sarah Sanders, uh, press briefing. And I'm like, well, hang on, that doesn't seem to be as relevant to Canadians as what the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition is saying. So CBC, $1.3 billion a year, and they are more interested in immersing themselves in the world of U.S. politics than covering the stories that are happening in Canada. And yes, the U.S. election is relevant to Canadians, which is why I'm going to be talking about it. But I, I do think that Canadian media, generally speaking, needs to stop being as obsessed with it. And the big part of this is because they're typically wrong on it. You know, if they were making arguments that were sound and offering something unique, and if they were actually tapped in to what was happening in U.S. politics, it might be a little bit easier to deal with. But they just missed the mark entirely because Canadian media, like so many Canadians, doesn't actually understand the Trump appeal. They don't understand why Trump won in 2016. They don't understand why he has a chance at victory in 2020. I'm not going to go down this road of saying that, oh yeah, it's definitely going to be Trump. There's no way Biden's going to win. But I'm also not going to say there's no way Trump will lose. I think that if you look at the numbers, I could see a lot of different things happening. And the fact that the ballots are not going to be counted for weeks and weeks to come, generally speaking, never works out in favor of Republicans. But the reason I want to talk Talk about it now is because everyone needs to start thinking of what's going to happen next. And next is a bit of a difficult thing to find right now because it may not be, as I said, that the election is over for you know several days or, or weeks to come, which is why I do think the country would benefit from a very decisive victory, not a 2000 and probably not a 2016 either. 
But you look at what's happening across the country right now. Businesses, especially in D.C., are boarding up their windows. People are expecting mass unrest. And I assure you, the rioting and looting is not going to come from Republicans if Joe Biden wins. The rioting and looting is going to be coming from the left should Trump win re-election. It's going to be an extension or a revival, whatever you want to call it, of what was happening throughout much of the lockdown after the Black Lives Matter protest started, where you get these activists that decide they can make their point by deciding to loot and riot and burn things, and all of those uh, events that CNN said were mostly peaceful, you may recall. That's going to be what happens. So the big unrest is not going to be coming if conservatives don't concede victory. The unrest is going to be coming if Trump wins and people on the left who still didn't actually uh, realize that Trump won and still haven't accepted that Trump won four years ago if they start to decide they're not going to accept this particular election result. But you look at the not just the unrest, the Antifa violence and that sort of stuff. Look at the effect of U.S. politics right now on individual people's families. And the media is stoking this, but there's a very significant story that's happening right now. This is a piece that was on ctvnews.ca, although it was an American piece by CNN. Wives of the deplorables discuss life with husbands who support Trump. Now, politics is pretty important in my life, so I, I would accept that there has to be in a healthy marriage of people that care about politics at least a fundamental shared understanding, not necessarily agreement, but a, a shared basis of understanding. But you get uh, people here that are saying, for example, as Carol Catherine did, she didn't know her husband was a Trump supporter until the day after the election. She called him the next morning crying, the article says. And he was like, yeah, of course she lost. She's an awful human being. And then Ms. Catherine says, it was like a light went off for me. And I thought, oh boy, we're going to have trouble. And for the next three years, she felt like she was living an alternate reality. Despite the fact that her husband was her high school sweetheart, a rekindled love after a first marriage, children and divorce, they barely fought, and now they have ideological differences. And the clincher, I didn't know that he's anti-abortion. I didn't know that he is so emotional about immigration. Both of us never really fleshed out these issues. If you are so passionate about politics and passionate about these issues that you are going to call your husband and sob on the phone the day after the election, perhaps in the 11 years you've been married, you should have talked about politics at one point. Again, if it, if it matters to you so much that you're going to cry, you should probably have that conversation about it with a loved one. And other people in this group as well are, are saying very similar things, that they don't want to just survive their marriage, they can't stick it out with a person who can't empathize with others, but by being married, Married to a Republican, you're missing out on an intimate part of marriage. That's what one post says. And I'm like, do you people have no joy in your life, no humanity that you can't see another person that you've had no marital issues with the same way you have always seen them just because you find out they are a Trump voter? And it's not just in couples. This story in Reuters was heartbreaking. Uh, when lifelong Democrat Myra Gomez told her 21-year-old son five months ago she was voting for Donald Trump, he cut her out of his life. He specifically told me, you are no longer my mother because you are voting for Trump. 
And this is not from some, you know, wealthy oil baron father. This is from a woman whose last name is Gomez, who is a personal care worker in Miss Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And she said their last conversation was so bitter that she's not sure they can reconcile, even if Trump loses his reelection bid. And all of these are, are anecdotal examples, but these aren't uncommon. These stories of people that refuse to have even a dialogue with someone who disagrees with them on politics, on Trump, on, on anything like that. And just remember what happened to Ellen DeGeneres. Now, I realize Ellen DeGeneres has been dragged through the ringer for supposed misconduct on the set of her TV show. But before that, she was hammered for daring to share a laugh with former President George W. Bush. There was that photo that went around of Ellen and uh, President Bush just laughing it up, having a grand old time. And then this was something that uh, got people attacking her for how could she be in cahoots with a war criminal or some such. And she had said, listen, I think we all need to have conversations with people and we are going to bridge these great divides in America by having dialogues with people with whom we disagree. And there was actually a concerted effort to cancel Ellen DeGeneres because she dared to, again, break bread with someone that she was at odds with politically. And this stuff is happening more and more often. I've seen memes that have gone around in various forms that have been like, you know, be like Dave. Dave is uh, willing to talk to his neighbor even though they are voting for different people. And if you look at the comments of these, the comments that people post on these sorts of memes, they're always like, well, hang on. But, you know, it's not like that because the neighbor, uh, if they vote for Trump, is not recognizing the basic humanity of, of this group or that group or this group. And you have this dehumanizing that is taking place about Trump supporters in a way that it hasn't with other political supporters in the last 30 years, even when politics has been very tense. Bush supporters were never as maligned as Trump supporters are. Reagan supporters were never as maligned as Trump supporters, Romney supporters, and, and all of that. Now, there is, a generally speaking, a dehumanizing effect to the candidates themselves, which is why Bush derangement syndrome was such a thing, and Palin derangement syndrome, Romney derangement syndrome, but perhaps none of those are as potent as Trump derangement, which has extended far beyond Donald Trump, but now anyone who supports him is supposedly evil. And this is a key part of the story of why Trump won in 2016, despite the media being so convinced that it was not even within the realm of possibility. I think it was Newsweek that had printed off however many copies of President Hillary Clinton covers, and that ended up being, well, not what happened. Well, what we see happening now is very similar. And even if the polling is looking a little bit differently, I try not to pay too much attention to the horse race stuff because, well, there are two reasons. Number one, Trump voters are underrepresented in polls. We learned that in 2016. We've learned that throughout the Trump presidency. And it's true now. They're less likely to be captured. And that's precisely why. And more importantly, the story. The reason that poll results are interpreted the way they are is because the media feels that it is looking at Trump supporters the way that Trump supporters themselves are actually thinking. And that isn't the case. 
they're looking at people and assuming, okay, it means this person to vote for Trump must have to be okay with this comment that Trump said and this tweet from Trump and whatever. When that's not what's happening, the people who are voting for Trump, by and large, are people who are seeing that the economy's doing better and they are experiencing it or want to be experiencing people that are seeing illegal immigration uh, rampant across the borders and the Democrats not just not having solutions, but Democrats actually mocking and vilifying those who say they're concerned about illegal immigration. People in Pennsylvania who are seeing Joe Biden flip-flop on whether he wants to ban fracking. People in Michigan, Wisconsin, to some extent Minnesota, who feel like, hey, you know what? I don't like all my factory jobs uh, going overseas. And this kind of spirals into a story of the forgotten man, or as Hillary Clinton would say, the deplorable, or as Barack Obama would say, the bitter clinger. And these people... I think are still going to be supporting Trump. And that's going to be the election. The election is not going to be just won or lost with Pennsylvania to get back into that horse race thing. The election is going to be won or lost based on whether the people who voted for Trump because they felt that every other politician had turned their back on them, whether they are still going to stick with Trump. And I think they are. So I have a, a couple of bets with some friends on this. I'm betting on a Trump win. I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say that there are not other possibilities. I could see a, a lot change even in the next 24 hours, but I'm betting on a Trump win because the media still doesn't understand how and why he won in 2016. And you see stories about how the media is saying, oh, no, 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 we know we got the polls wrong in 2016. Here's how we fixed it. Well, if they didn't know that the polls were wrong in 2016, I don't believe that their supposed magic fixes of them in 2020 are going to amount to that much of a difference. Because again, if you don't understand the people, the numbers aren't going to tell you the story. We'll be back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Let's talk about these things that we've all been through, we've all experienced at some point in our lives, so we can't really judge other people for doing so. A doctor in India was duped into buying a wish-granting Aladdin's magic lamp for over a quarter of a million dollars. As I hear you judging, I see it. Don't uh, don't judge until you've uh, walked a mile in he, his uh, Aladdin-style shoes, I guess. No, we, we've all been there. A desire to get all his wishes filled with a magic lamp a la Aladdin has landed a doctor in trouble. The doctor just got back to India from London and was tweeted, uh, tr not tweeted, uh, that's uh, equally uh, terrible in your life, cheated by two men who claim to be tantrics or sorcerers who sold him Aladdin Kacharag. Aladdin's magical lamp for a whopping uh, $300,000, which I presume is U.S., because I'm reading this in Vice, promising it will fulfill all his wishes without the much-needed hard work to translate them into reality and that it will make him a billionaire. The incident took place in the North Indian city of Meerut in the state of Uttar Pradesh. Uh, the victim, Dr. Laik Khan, approached the police when he realized he'd been duped and filed a complaint against the cheats. Uh, the doctor... Uh, said that uh, apparently they were doing some sort of a magic trick of sorts to convince him the lamp was real. But, uh, well, now $300,000 later, here we are. So I'm of the mindset on this that you, if you had the $300,000 to spend on the magic lamp, you probably have enough money that you could just not tell anyone about this. Because, again, like I'm, I would be just more concerned with anyone knowing. Now, like if you're this doctor, you've basically proven to the world that you'll believe absolutely 
uh, anything and everything. In, unless the, the joke is on everyone and the genie was just, you know, re- waiting for the chosen one to come out. But uh, the doctor has alleged that uh, this all came about through meeting the so-called tantrics through a, a patient, I think. And they uh, had promised to make him a billionaire, give him the magical powers. And again, Disney may have uh, created something terrible. This is the problem with all these Disney remakes of films is that they uh, tend to reinvigorate the folklore surrounding them. Uh, What else is happening in the world? Prince William contracted COVID-19 in April, according to a report in the UK Sun. He didn't want to tell anyone, though, because he didn't want to cause alarm. This was around the time that his dad, uh, Prince Charles, had it. And the thing is, for everyone that has basically seen the horror stories of COVID-19, it's amazing that the most high-profile people to get it have had few to no issues whatsoever. Now, in fairness, this source said that Prince William had some troubles breathing, but Prince Charles had no issues, Donald Trump, Melania Trump, Barron Trump, Tom Hanks, uh, The Rock, I think, had COVID at one point, if I'm not mistaken. All of these people that are really well-known examples of it tended to have no issues, and that sort of stuff makes it very difficult for people to uh, follow what the government is saying. On the other hand, which is, this thing's going to kill you, stay inside. Which brings me to this story about where Canada is headed now. We were told at the very beginning, before we had even flattened the curve, that we had to flatten the curve because otherwise there was going to be a a second wave. So that was the whole thing. Flatten the curve to make sure hospitals can get ready and then we'll we'll deal with this thing. And as we know now, being that uh, we are in, what, the eighth month of uh, flattening the curve, that was not actually the goal. But here's what Justin Trudeau said the other day. Second wave will be, quote, weeks and months of limiting contacts. So remember when a few weeks ago after the speech from the throne, Justin Trudeau gave his address to the nation. And this is what he said. We're on the brink of a fall that could be much worse than the spring. I know this isn't the news that any of us wanted to hear. And we can't change today's numbers or even tomorrow's. Those were already decided by what we did or didn't do two weeks ago. But what we can change is where we are in October and into the winter. It's all too likely we won't be gathering for Thanksgiving, but we still have a shot at Christmas. Okay, so it was at the time that, you know what, Thanksgiving's a write-off, but we got a shot at Christmas. Christmas is the goal. Well, you go a few weeks forward and now all of a sudden it's, no, 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 this is just going to be weeks or months. So I know we're going to be told in about a month's time that there's no Christmas, that it's being canceled too. And then before you know it, we're at Easter 2021 and we're still trying to flatten the curve from Easter 2020. So there's a reason that people need to pay attention to these. We know that Britain is going back into lockdown as well. France has gone into lockdown. Australia has had one of the most uh, Orwellian uh, approaches to this issue. And, and I think it's actually quite shameful that these areas that were once, you know, the most uh, free societies in the world are, are now coming down this uh, path of, of no return, basically, of, of complete government control over your own movement on your own street, for crying out loud. But what Justin Trudeau is saying is that if we maintain our current rate of contact, the Trudeau government's uh, estimates are that we're going to have 8,000 cases daily by December. So this idea of having a shot at Christmas has been completely thrown out the window, and Trudeau is uh, doing his finger-wanging at so-called bad behavior. 
saying we know when people actually do follow instructions and manage to reduce their contacts and do the things that matter, we know that we do see better outcomes, unquote. And listen, I mean, if the whole point of this thing is to wait until we have a vaccine, we are in for a rude awakening. Because I'm, I'm certain that a lot of people, and I've actually seen people say something to this effect online before, are probably at the point where they're like, you know what, I'd rather just do the whole chicken pox party thing right now. I'd rather just go to a house party, get COVID, uh, hang out at home for two weeks, and then go out into the world and kind of enjoy my immunity. Well, now this is now being uh, called into question. A Russian professor has infected himself twice with COVID-19, and now he's saying that herd immunity is not going to save us. The professor, Alexander Chapurnov, had contracted it on a flight in February for the first time and went back home, recovered, and had no issues. And then he uh, noticed that he had developed the antibodies in his system, but a few months later saw they had gone away. So what did he do? He took one for the team for science. He went and exposed himself deliberately to COVID-19. And this particular case actually had quite significant symptoms, he said, and found that the antibodies had gone away. So this immunity that he had from having the virus had dissipated after just a few months. And he's now taking from this experience that all of the vaccines that are being developed right now are not actually going to work. He said, we need a vaccine that can be used multiple times. Uh, a, re a recombinant vaccine will not suit. And what he's arguing is that it's actually an entirely different vaccine that we need than the one that's being developed. So I'm sharing this with you now to tell you that the groundwork is already being laid for the goalpost to move again. And I, I'm not saying that this doctor is part of a, a conspiracy of sorts. I mean, any guy that's going to give themselves a virus just so that they can study their response to it, you have to have some respect for. But now there's a, at least this basis of support for the idea that, no, 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 herd immunity is not going to exist, and the vaccines that we're getting are not going to protect us in the long run, which reinforces this idea that this thing is here to stay which means that government responses to it are here to stay. And that's an incredibly dangerous position to adopt because what's happening now is not sustainable. The idea that, what, uh, 10 months, 9 months after the first wave of this started to hit Europe, we now see Europe going into major lockdowns that are in many cases more draconian than the ones that existed the first time around. And if the second wave is worse than the first wave, what's to say the third wave won't be worse than the second wave and so on, especially since this vaccine is still not as close to being released as we were told early on. Remember that uh, we were told months ago that, oh, you know, we're going to have vaccines ready to go any day now. Well, that's not happening. It's still taking a, a lot longer. Just in Ontario, even flu vaccines, the, the regular old flu shot, they're finding they can't keep up with demand. So people are actually having their appointments to get the flu shot canceled. And the reason for this is because there aren't enough flu shots. So the idea that a vaccine that everyone's telling us to take if a COVID-19 vaccine comes out is probably not going to be as widely available as people are wanting to say it will be if even the, the regular old flu shot which hasn't been promoted as aggressively, is not maintaining a, a solid or, or sustainable inventory. So, I mean, what's the takeaway from this? The takeaway from this is that people have to start thinking for themselves and adopting their own risk mitigation measures based on their own comfort level. There was a, a story in my hometown, I think a week ago or two weeks ago, a woman who's now been fined by the City of London because she reminded people at her store that they are not 
or that they are allowed to go in without a mask if they have an exemption. She just said, we're not going to ask you any questions. That is completely compliant with the law. She had the sign up that said, you have to wear a mask if you come here. And then beside it, she had the sign that said, I'm not going to ask any questions. Maybe it's violating the spirit of the law, but it's adhering to the letter of the law. And now she's gotten a fine for, I believe, $880, just because she was reminding people that they have a human right, if there's a reason they can't wear a mask, to not wear a mask if they go into her store. The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms has taken up her case, and and just in the interest of disclosure, the JCCF is also representing True North and myself in our case against the Leaders' Debates Commission, but I, I make no secret that I'm a big supporter of the work they do, and they've actually been tremendously valuable on these issues of people getting tickets and fines for violating these lockdown measures that aren't actually really public health measures at all. So people need to develop their own risk aversion. You get travel now. I mean, travel is completely uh, blown out of the water and not going to happen with any uh, level of longevity right now. And you just take a look at the Canadian government still telling people not to go anywhere. Now even domestic travel from one part of a province to another is being told it can't happen. You look at Atlantic Canada where they're enforcing this bubble. Well, how long can you keep people contained to their provinces and keep people out of provinces? Remember, the Constitution of Canada is very clear on this, that you have a right to mobility within the country. Well, now, if you want to go to New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, PEI, enter the Atlantic bubble, as it's called, you have to agree to quarantine for two weeks. And this is, again, decimating, decimating Atlantic Canada's tourism industry, which is why Alberta has gone so vastly in the other direction. Jason Kenney said a couple of weeks ago in response to a question from me, actually, that if people are going to follow the health guidelines and they want to visit Alberta, have at it. Because he realizes that when this is going on as long as it is, you cannot just lock down a province and expect that there won't be effects of this and implications of this that are not worse than the thing that they're supposedly trying to remedy. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Last July, back when, as I mentioned earlier, travel was a lot more permissible than it is right now, I had the great privilege of covering the Global Conference for Media Freedom in London, England, a two-day event put on by Canada and the United Kingdom to stand up for press freedom. Now, I tended to uh, enjoy the experience because I got a lot more than I bargained for in terms of understanding the government's actual commitment level or lack thereof to press freedom. You may recall Sheila Gunn-Reed from Rebel and I were the only two journalists excluded from attending a scrum at the Media Freedom Conference with Christia Freeland, the Canadian minister that was promoting this idea of media freedom. Now, thankfully, due to the support of the other journalists at the event from Global News, Al Jazeera, English, Globe and Mail, CTV, even CBC, I believe, we were permitted access to this scrum, but it wasn't a guarantee. So press freedom is a very important thing to me, and it is to all journalists and all freedom-loving people. The event is back. It was supposed to be held in person, but now has been switched to an online format, which will be in November. I've still applied for accreditation to cover it. But what's interesting is the event is no longer being co-hosted by Canada and the United Kingdom, but instead by Canada and Botswana. 
Now, I reached out to the United Kingdom government, to the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, to see what the reason was for the UK no longer co-hosting it. And according to the UK, it's not for any particular reason. They say media freedom is a priority for the UK, and we are committed to working with our partners around the world to promote free media and the safety of journalists. As co-chair of the Media Freedom Conference, we continue to support its vital work, including the Global Conference on Media Freedom, hosted by Canada and Botswana this year. A spokesperson for the Canadian government said on background that they wanted to include a country from the global south where media freedom is a significant challenge. And I think that's entirely valid. However, I think there are two issues here. Number one, doing so with a focus on Africa or South America or Asia, as happened last year at the Press Freedom Conference, tends to deflect from issues that are existing in Western governments where press freedom is not being respected. By focusing on these countries, Canada and the UK don't need to look at their own uh, less than stellar record on press freedom. And then there's also the specific issue of why Botswana. Just to put this into perspective, in the April 30th, 2020 edition of the Daily Maverick, which is an African publication, uh, Botswana had to be told that censorship is not the cure for COVID-19. Botswana's president was accused of using the pandemic to crack down on critics and the media. Despite Botswana being held up as, quote, the shining example of African democracy, unquote, there is a trend in the country that the current president is holding on to to actually use emergency powers to fine people for sharing what the government says is misinformation about COVID-19, up to $10,000. Critics say the law, with its broad and vague definitions, is a gift to authoritarian leaders who want to use the public health crisis to grab power and suppress freedom of speech. In June 2020, the Committee to Protect Journalists, a global body, said authorities in Botswana should drop all charges against two journalists that were charged with nuisance for, again, daring to criticize the government's response to COVID-19. And then you have this article as well in another African publication talking about censorship being the unexpected side effect of COVID-19. So what we have here is Canada now co-hosting a media freedom conference with a country that is charging journalists, that is criminalizing journalism because the government doesn't like their particular approach to the issues. So if we're going to learn from countries on press freedom, perhaps Botswana is not the greatest example of this. In fact, it reminds me last year of when the foreign minister for Pakistan was on a press freedom panel. Ezra Levant decided he wasn't going to have any of that. And at another point, when Christian Freeland honored the Malaysian uh, representative, who himself has been a strong supporter of even extraterritorial prosecution for people that dare to criticize the Malaysian government. So these are the people that we are legitimizing in the course of supposedly standing up for press freedom. We've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show. We'll talk to you in a couple of days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton show. Support the program by donating to true North at www.tnc.news.